we're hard pressed on every side. You know, we're not we're not just galvanized. We're not you know, there's not some sort of force field around us, but we're not crushed. Welcome, everyone, Welcome. to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors are exploring the gospel. Especially you, Jeremy Williams. You know who you are. Jeremy Williams. <laughs> shout out to Jeremy Williams. Our listener. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to welcome our listener. <laughs> Today's episode is called The Strength of My Heart. We're in the series called Faith That Works. And today's episode is called Strength of My Heart. Mm, How the gospel is uniquely suited to fortify the human psyche, both in mundane and extreme circumstances. Mm, yeah. Hey, let's start with personal stories. Can you give me an <laughs> example of a time when the gospel was something that you resorted to to keep your poop in a group? Uh, this is a Christian podcast. Me. <laughs> it's a Christian podcast. So that's a euphemism for other words. But anyway, to keep it together. Like, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose your stuff. And you had to run to Jesus. Like, you were in a crisis. So let's just be personal and participatory. Those are two Ps, too. Mm. Okay. You guys don't have anything. You live charmed lives. You're making us think. Yeah, I know. And mm. I'm sorry, dude. I should have made you think before this. But, you know, who has time for that? I'll, I'll go with a mundane one, okay? Mm -hmm. So I worked at UPS for 14 years. And, um, you know, it was soul-sucking. I, I think being in corporate America, it sucks. Literally. I'm No, figuratively. Mm -hmm. Your soul, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? I don't want to be mm -hmm. stabbed by a vagrant and die. <laughs> um, just and, and I guess that's why I specified in the mundane. Sometimes the trial is just get up do something completely inane go home watch tv go to bed <laughs> or whatever it is um try to find the wherewithal to get up the next day mm -hmm. um and it was a challenge um there were times when you know there at the end i was going in to work at four in the morning uh, what what pulls you out of bed at four in the morning to do lots of manual, repetitive manual labor and not just want to jump ship, um, freak out, do something desperate. Um, and that was, you know, obviously I had family counting on me and uh, for support and I, and I needed to be there, but continuing to be there was something that it felt like it was beyond me. And so finding this ability to worship God through mundane action it, it redeemed that time it, it's like I found that I went back and forth between I, I think a, the common approach I'll call it and that is to see work as a necessary evil something to tolerate for the sake of what comes after or something to achieve other goals by and that's the way most people approach work. That's just the natural way we do it. Um, and yet, if you look at scripture or the gospel, if we apply the gospel, let's say we point it at mundane work, which 
praise God, a lot of the people who were Christians in the first century did mundane tasks. And so there's there are resources there. Now, they're generally addressed to slaves because the employees weren't really a thing. Um, so, I, you know, people say, well, those don't those don't apply to you because they were written to slaves. Like, look, that's the closest that you have to the modern wage slave, uh, you know, in the socioeconomic structure of America. Um, and so this idea that we can offer our work to Christ, it redeems those eight to nine hours a day. We spend most of our waking hours at work. If, if work is just something to tolerate until we do something we really like, then most of our life is, is just kind of thrown away or something we endure. But if we are able to say, well, my real goal in life is to worship God, to please him in whatever I do, um, and then I have this unbroken pursuit of my real goal in life. Mm -hmm. So as a family man, I'm pursuing that goal. As if I'm involved in leisure activities, I'm pursuing that goal. If I'm doing something that's overtly ministry related, I'm pursuing that goal, but not in any way that's more significant than in any of the other modes. And to be able to do that allowed me to have a better outlook and, and I think just greater emotional, psychological health in the midst of something that threatened to erode my outlook on life. So that's just a mundane example. It's not a huge crisis or a loss. It's just ordinary life. And I think sometimes that may be too much to handle, at least for me, mm -hmm. apart from this idea that I'm not the savior. I don't have to accomplish anything. I've been purchased and that God is in charge. And if I'm there, he's at least allowing me to be there and I'm going to serve him there. So not only did that, I think, help my own psyche, but it also made me a better employee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I, I think that's, that's valid for, for a lot of us in America um, that you know, day to day, a lot of what we face is just finding, <laughs> needing to find the inner strength just to make it mm -hmm. through the day. I think, especially through the, you know, the recent pandemic, there's been such a seismic shift in, in the work culture, the workplace of people, um, you know, making these huge changes with jobs, just reaching a, a point of being maxed out where they can't go on anymore. And a lot of people are just quitting outright and they have nothing, nothing else to turn to. That's understandable, but uh, where do we find the inner strength to persevere through these daily trials and struggles um, if we don't have the basis for something that we're, we're actually putting, <laughs> putting our trust and confidence in? If we don't have something that we hope, we put our hope in that's beyond the immediate discomfort, then it's hard to endure and to, to last through you know, the day. Yeah. And so I know, I know a lot of, a lot of people, it's just like, I'm just trying to get to Friday so I can go drink it with my friends because that's the only thing that is going to get my mind off of having to get up on Monday morning and start all over again. Yeah. That's not song. really hope. That's just like a big distraction. So. Yeah. Everybody's working for the weekend. I mean, that's, that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> and I was just talking to a guy who was talking about, um, you know, so I guess I, uh, began attempting to follow Christ, although in a, in a horrible and dysfunctional way about the time I was 17. So that's a whole other story. 
Um, but it, it meant that I didn't really spend time in bars as a young adult or as an adult, I guess, in any way. And uh, so I have a friend that spent a lot of time in bars and I was talking to him. Why do people go to bars? Because, you know, alcohol is a lot more expensive at bars. If you really, if you're there to get drunk, you can just buy a, you know, a bottle of whatever and drink that and you'll be drunk and it's cheaper. And, you know, I'm pretty frugal. And, and I went out as just an outreach to a bar with a couple of guys one time and they, I just couldn't believe how much money that they spend. It's so expensive, you know? And, and I'm like, why does anybody do this? And he was talking about how people get to the, go to the bar to forget. But the problem is, is that, you know, say they're going to forget their problems but they spend 150 bucks at the bar. So the next morning, not only are their problems back, but they're worse because now they're $150 poorer. Not to mention the hangover. Right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, everybody has their coping mechanisms. And, uh, you know, when I talk to atheists about religion and ultimately they're like, well, whatever gets you through the day. So it's this kind of backhanded insult. Like, well, you're obviously too psychologically, emotionally weak to handle life. So, if you need to believe this fantasy, I'm not going to take it away from you. And, uh, maybe they're right. You know, I, um, I remember, um, Stuart Briscoe. Has anybody, you ever heard of him? No, he's a he's Scottish guy teacher. Yeah. And he, he was talking about how he was doing outreach and he was preaching the gospel somewhere. And, um, this, this person objected and they said, it's a crutch. It's a crutch. And he said, you know, if you go to the doctor with a broken leg and he gives you you know, this device that's got a pad at one end and a stopper at the other, and it'll help you get along. Do you hit him over the head with it and start shouting, it's a crutch, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and, and the Christian narrative is, is there is a brokenness. We admit that there's a brokenness in, in humankind. I think that's the right. first, that's really the first step for people coming to the Lord. I, I, I know people that would say, um, if it wasn't for my faith, that I've discovered in Christ, I would be an alcoholic. That would be my crutch. Yeah. And, and that would destroy me. <laughs> right. You know, so like they, they say literally I, I, I have to hold on to Christ or I'm, I am lost. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and Jesus talks about those who are poor in spirit, blessed to the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and people who are not poor in spirit, people who are somehow uh, fortified in spirit, at least in their own estimation. They're just not going to come to Christ because he, you know, he insults us and he says, you, you can't do it. And that feels like an insult. I think it, it affronts our ego. And so people will continue with their, trying to salvage their ego and do it in ways that are even harmful. So long as they can maintain that illusion that they are adequate in some way until those who until we kind of get to the place where there's just no way to maintain that deception that self-deception you know we're really not ready for him i don't think some people aren't so and you know last time after we quit i was saying that everybody i know that's defected from the faith is at least a second or third generation christian that doesn't say that, i'm not trying i'm not saying that to say that discipleship only works for somebody who began as a lost person. What I'm saying is, is that those who began as lost people know there's no place else to go. Those who began as Christians are, they are somewhat emotionally healthy because they had a mom and a dad who loved them and a community that was around them and they benefited from this narrative. And so they had a degree of emotional health that the people out there don't, or at least they haven't seen how 
very unhealthy it is out in the world. And then they face these sort of intellectual objections to Christianity, and their their the, the intellectual structure of their faith starts to crack. They might shed the doctrines, the beliefs, and they might feel that they can do so because they have a healthy way of life they can fall back on. Right. Um, because they haven't learned the hard way that they need Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend, and he abandoned his faith in probably his late 30s, early 40s. So he's not like a lot of the you know younger folks today. That's a real phenomenon. But this guy's middle-aged. And um, he... He told me that after he, you know, officially kind of decided he doesn't believe that nothing really changed in his life, that his moral fabric remained intact. And I was like, well, that's great for you, but for me, not so much. And that's kind of what I've, I've told people. I, I've been very frank. I was like, you know, I've had a lot of doubts, a lot of intellectual doubts. What I believe has changed over time. But I know that um, I'm kind of like those disciples there in John six. You know, where am I going? Where am I going to go? Because I've already I've already seen it. I've already been out there. I mean, I was raised nominal Baptist, but for all intents and purposes, we didn't believe. I, uh, I mean, my mom, and you know, as awesome as she is, and as great of a mom as she was to me, that you know, to this day, she's probably eighty percent unbeliever you know entertains the notion that there's something and my dad's complete nihilist atheist um so those are those are kind of the dominant belief systems regardless if i went to the baptist church as a kid we, you know we we did that because maybe there's something out there or it's good for me to have a you know some sort of moral training i guess but at the end of the day there's not anybody and you're on your own yeah so we were talking about our own experiences with the trials of the mundane everyday <laughs> grind that can grind us down and uh but then what happens when something really big comes you know because if you're barely making it on the good days when the really right. bad days comes you know it seems like people are just crumble if they oh, have yeah. nothing to fall back on. Yeah, and, and I think that the tendency, at least in our time, is to blame circumstances or blame other people. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about people being snowflakes back, say, beginning 2016 or 2017 and the election. And so many people were emotionally distraught over that. And... Um, and so there's, I, I think there's a level of fragility that comes in being an activist reformist because you've put all of your expectations and hope in things changing. And if things move backward, you're destroyed. Um, and you don't, you're, you don't know how to exist and what to do with your worldview. And now you're, you're threatened. Perhaps you're in danger. I, as an, you know, as an observer looking in, I'm like, what is the fear about? Why is there so much? Yeah, it's just like our government systems are essentially the same. And I don't think it was that Trump won the presidency so much as that they discovered that their neighbors voted for Trump, <laughs> that they were surrounded by people who were of a very different mindset than they knew. And they felt, you know, they, they felt vulnerable and endangered by these white supremacists, I guess, that lived all around them. 
Yeah, so that was 2016. Right. Fast forward to <laughs> right. later, the flip-flop happened. Trump right. didn't win the next election. And what do you mean? He did. <laughs> well, okay. Whatever you feel about that, that's not the point. Uh Biden is in the office right, right now, yeah, right? Yeah. And that unhinged another group of people to say, "No, this can't right. happen." You know, the, so we'd rather, it, we'd rather overthrow the government than to have somebody else yeah. as president. Exactly, and so without that groundedness, I think that, that this panic sets in. It, it's not a healthy coping mechanism either way. Now, how does the gospel provide that groundedness? Let's tease it out, you know, like in the mundane and in the and in the extreme. As you told your story, what were the phrases you used to describe how the gospel um, gave you contentment and peace, gave you strength? What are the what are the ideas of the gospel, rather than just saying the word the gospel gave me strength? Right. What what, what is what is it about the gospel that does it? Sure. Us? I think it's twofold. I, I think that the gospel allows us to waste our life if we have to. And that's a, that's kind of an odd Explain. thing. Explain. Sure. Waste my life in what kind of way? Well, waste, waste our life from what anybody else would see. So here's Jesus Christ. Okay. The guy is a rags to riches story. Backwater Nazarene carpenter turned itinerant rabbi, turned local celebrity, turned revolutionary leader, turned criminal crucified on a cross. So, man, talk about an arc. And, you know, in that moment when, at this high point of his popularity, when everything looked like it was finally going to come to fruition, he turns to his disciples and says, I'm going to be crucified, or, you know, and, I, and I'm going to be offered up, I'm going to die. And Peter, Peter voices, I think, this, this thing that's resident in all of us about the value of this life. And that is, far be it from you. This will never happen to you. We have an assumption that human life and our life in particular, and certainly the lives of our heroes or the revolutionaries or those in whom we place our hopes and our expectation that those people must endure and must conquer in a physical way that we have to have a measurable output to our life. And here's Jesus. Finally, traction is coming. I mean, his, his ministry was so vacuous, you know, I mean, it, there were people around, but nothing was happening. I mean, the John the Baptist even would come up and say, I'm a bit disappointed here. And I he sends his people and he says, are you the one to come or are we looking for somebody else? You know, what are you, what are you doing? What are you futzing around out there in the backwater for? Are you going to start this revolution or not? And, um, Jesus sends him back, you know, sends them back with kind of this stuff. And, uh, but you know, Hey, tell them that you see all these signs and wonders and that the poor have the gospel preached to them. Thanks Jesus. That'll feed my family. Right. Uh, but so Jesus doesn't change anything. And, and I think Peter is distraught over this. Well, it, I, I, I'm just imagining, you know, uh, okay, modern day Jesus as the leadership guru. Okay, Jesus, what's your, uh, what's your model for success? He's like, um, get crucified? Yeah. yeah. As, <laughs> Wait, as, a criminal, what? as a criminal. I mean, not even leave behind uh, a As legacy. a loser. <laughs> right. 
not even leave behind this legacy of this revolutionary, this martyr. You know, we use the word martyr, we throw it around. But Jesus, Jesus didn't even really die a martyr. There weren't people who were like, we will avenge him, you know, or, or that he was such a, a hero and how dare, I mean, it, it's like everybody around him is, is crying out for his blood, wanting an actual criminal to be set free in his stead. It, there's nothing. He's got no followers. He has no reputation. He's literally, he literally has no clothes on. Everyone goes home disappointed. Right. Yeah. He has no, he has no power. God has left him. He has no physical strength. We don't really appreciate that death is the relinquishing of all strength and potential. And, and so most of us will do that because we just don't have a choice to do that on purpose. It's not just the pain. It's not the suffering. It is the relinquishing of, of all potential. And here's somebody with more potential, at least in Peter's estimation, than anybody who's ever come along. And now he's saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to flush that on the will of God. So uh, all that to say is that within the gospel, I think, is this I ability to identify with Christ in that which is pointless and empty and never will be redeemed in this life. Yeah, so I, I see in that, you know, the invitation of, of Christ and the cross that he, he's, he's making an exchange. Um, you know, the burdens, the trials of this world, the, the things that you put your hope in that you're realizing <laughs> lead nowhere and disappointing. I can take those, but in exchange, he's giving us the cross, mm -hmm. which is a it, which is a a form of death, right? You know, to all those things that have come before us in life. Yeah, well, and in that, what we find when we go to it, like suffering, it is not a noble thing, but I think suffering in Jesus' name, suffering with Him, taking up the cross, uh, and and that has to do with uh, a willingness. It's not so much that our circumstances change, but that we say, God, I'm here. And if I'm here and you are sovereign, then I'm here at your will. I'm happy to leave this circumstance if you give me the chance, like Jesus said in the garden. But if I don't, then I will serve you. I'm not going to wait to serve you until my circumstances change. I'm just going to surrender to you. And, and in that, I think that we find we find a power that the world does not have access to. And, and so I think of uh, Paul when he says, you know, we're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Second Corinthians four, eight. So it's not that we don't go through the pain of this life and the things that we encounter. We're hard pressed on every side. You know, we're not, we're not just galvanized. We're not, you know, there's not some sort of force field around us, but we're not crushed. Uh, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And, uh, and he says that all of these things are carrying around in our body, the death of Jesus. And so uh, it, it's it, that we don't do that alone. Jesus did it alone. I think he, I think he's the only one that did it alone. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, I'm, you know, I thank God that we don't have to do it alone. Yeah. And then what does he say after that? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, the other half of that sentence. It is so that, that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And I think that's the not crushed, not in despair, not destroyed part. 
Mm -hmm. that somebody keeps going through this stuff and they come out on the other side not unmoved you know even christ was was very distraught in the things that he went through but not not obliterated mm -hmm. something rises from those daily ashes it's the the resurrection power yeah in the sense that the cross is not the end of the story right and that yeah. correlates to other um, themes in scripture uh, suffering produces character, character mm -hmm. uh, hope because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts and there's another yeah. one about how we've suffered and that and been comforted and now we're able to comfort others so yeah. in this life even in this life we experience the hope to th that we uh that we see we are changing right and we get to help others when they suffer because we've suffered and we've endured and we've met god in it yeah and i just want to say you know the resurrection power there there's that hope in the ultimate sense that when we actually physically die we, we have a hope beyond mm -hmm. death mm -hmm. that we will be redeemed and we'll live with him but that same power exists in our daily struggles whether they be mundane or you know catastrophic because we see that god is constantly redeeming the things that we go through with that same type of resurrection power that he he takes those things and so we have hope in the midst of a you know whatever our current struggles might be that our our god you know in christ will redeem the things that we're going through the suffering that we're going through which at the time may not make any sense but we believe that he's done this before he'll do it again and somewhere on the other side of this you know that resurrection he'll will bring things back to life in a way that this entire suffering is redeemed in my life yes and and i think that's the the beauty of it and and the, i think for me the challenge is to relinquish the expectations as to what that resurrection will look like mm-hmm because when you, yes. when you die, you've, you've let it go. You can't, you can't <laughs> dictate it. I, I, would, I would love for that to work out in right. <laughs> several ways, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going through all this, Lord, but, you know, and I'm counting on your resurrection power to move me out of this stinking job and give me something fulfilling, you know? And, With a 20% like, oh. raise and, right. uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, only working a few days a week, maybe. Right. And... Or, or whatever. I mean, <laughs> but if we, if we just say, I'm, I'm just going to cast myself on him today. With no expectation, I'm only here to um, to surrender to the will of God. And so whatever that might be, to offer my energies in worship to him. Because, you know, hey, at UPS, I mean, there were times I tried to find a good spin that, hey, the, the, the things I'm doing are making the world a better place. They weren't. These people did not need all this crap. You know, I mean, I, I worked for Walmart. I'm keeping, keeping commerce going. You know, nobody cares. It's like there was zero value intrinsically in the things I was doing there. And so I had to find this, this presence of God in the midst of the mundane that he, uh, he's not so much, he doesn't need my help. Um, he doesn't need me to produce. He uh, wants my heart. And if he has me here moving boxes, then I'm going to move these boxes in the best dadgum way I can because I love him. And, and in that, you find a very pure motive 
but you also find joy. I mean, man, some of the best times of worship that I've ever had are just, you know, using hand to surface technique, pivoting on my, you know, on my uh, heels, uh, lifting with my legs and not my back. See, you can do those, you can do the job I had at UPS without any of that, but those are the things that, that the company said, this is how you do it right. Now, nobody did it because it takes too much time. And it's, it's, it, has, it has almost no benefit to you, to the customer, to anybody, except for that one time in a thousand when hand to surface is gonna keep that package from breaking or whatever. But it didn't matter because every package was the Lord's package. And I was just happy to handle his packages, you know? Uh, however, you may wanna turn that dirty, I guess euphemistically, but I mean, just to handle the stuff on his behalf is, was, my, was my honor mm -hmm. as, you know, it doesn't really matter if you really love the person and they say, what I want is for you to cut down the biggest tree in the forest with a herring and that's what they want, then you're happy to do it if you really love them. You know, you don't have to say, well, that's, that's stupid. Why would you, why would you, you're just like, if this makes you happy, it makes me happy. <laughs> and so to me, that, that, that was the thing, but it, that's the mundane, but I think where it really shines is as the circumstances become more extreme. Because really, if you were to walk up and down the line at UPS, you would not know who the Christians were. Well, you would know who the Christians weren't. <laughs> you know, uh, that Andre guy who, you know, is miming like he's shooting all of us because he's frustrated probably is not, at least in that moment, living out the faith. Sorry, Andre. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Because, but that's how stressful, I guess, it was. And, and, uh, but all that to say that generally everybody's doing the same action. It's, it's things like, um, the story of, um, oh, I can't ever remember his name. Something Gordon, um, in the movie, um, Flash to end Gordon. all wars now to end all wars. And he is a, he's a Scottish Argyle soldier and he is taken into the Japanese, the, uh, bridge, bridge of the river Kwai based uh, on okay. a lot of it so this guy is a is a christian he's somewhat nominal but he meets a guy named dusty who's a very serious believer and this guy has started in the midst of this concentration camp he starts a university teaching these his fellow prisoners the classics mm -hmm. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. so you know they, they've got to work from sun up to sundown they get like you know 300 calories a day maybe on a great day and they're exhausted, they're starving, they're half naked. And, and yet this guy, he's got his own little kind of retreat out in the jungle and he worships God and out there and he gives up his food for the sick and he attends to them when they go to that kind of the death shed. And so this guy is, he's resorting to his faith, but by resorting to his faith, he has found uh, you know, a, a very kind of exalted way of, of life that he's not just surviving there, but that he is thriving and he is redeeming the environment. And I have yet to hear a similar story from other belief systems. And yet when that kind of pressure, I think is put on humankind, Dietrich Bonhoeffer going around and, you know, giving his his food to his fellow prisoners, speaking encouragement over them, even though he's, you know, scheduled to die. Um, 
Watchman Nee, people who escaped Chinese, the Chinese concentration camps, guards who'd converted to Christianity because they met Watchman Nee, you know, a guy who's walking through the prison with a freshly broken arm at the hands of his guards, singing hymns and encouraging his fellow prisoners. Those kinds of things show a, a resilience that tra really transcend, I think, human capacity that's there, I think, in, in small ways throughout ordinary difficulties of life, but become that much more prominent as the situation becomes that much more extreme. Mm -hmm. That seems to suggest there's something there, and it's not just head games, but you, know, you could say it is, and if it is, well, everybody's playing head games. Maybe this is just the best one. And we'll find out in the end. Um, right. So, could I share a quick story? Yeah, yeah, sure. I just I want to share this before we close, and then we're almost we're almost out of time. Oh, okay, right? sure. Okay, so um, in let's say the early two thousands, I would say about two thousand six, maybe. So, yeah. My aunt called me. My aunt's not a believer. Um, she's kind of hostile to the faith. Uh, came up nominal Baptist like I did, but had became enlightened, I guess, and wasn't a believer. And she raised her son not to be a believer. And I mean, at one time, her son, Sean, had, had told me, you know, when you die, that's it. And if there's a God, it's my mom, he says. You know, he just kind of had really counted on his mom. And she, and so she was obviously very influential in, in the way he believed. Um, but, and, and that was fine when Sean was in his 20s. But now Sean was bordering on 40. And his mom called and, and she said, Sean needs your help. And I was like, what? And it's just like, he is, she, her words were, her word was hypervigilant. Uh, what she meant was paranoid. Um, he was struggling with some massive psychological problems. Um, he had substances, you know, he had resorted to substances for decades now. And uh, he had been in rehab at least two separate times residential rehab, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in rehab. And he was at a place where he could not sleep at night. He had to have this backpack with him all the time. He really couldn't focus for more than a few seconds without, you know, darting to another thought. And he was imploding. Um, and so he came to visit with me. And after all of the therapy, all of the rehab and everything, I, on our fourth or fifth time, and the first, I didn't think it was worth it because he couldn't even listen to me. We couldn't even have a conversation. He would just so all over the map, so agitated. On about our, our fourth or fifth session, I led him in the sinner's prayer. I don't do that. I don't really believe in the sinner's prayer. <laughs> but I, I thought at that moment, that's just what he needed. And so I led him in that. And from that moment on, he was healthy. He could, now he was on permanent disability for a number of things. And I don't think he would have been a very good candidate to go out into the workplace and stuff, but he went from not being able to sleep at night to being able to sleep. He went from this state of constant agitation to being able to just go out into the forest and reflect and pray. And, um, and so we really didn't need to keep meeting. Now, if you're familiar with the, the world of therapy and stuff, 
taking somebody from the verge of suicide to not really needing to meet anymore in five sessions is pretty good. Mm -hmm. But it didn't have anything to do with me. I couldn't even really get through to him. It's just that it's that finding of faith that is that groundedness that comes through the gospel that he had been deprived of like oxygen and having taken a big breath he was pulled from the brink he joined a um, home fellowship i think it was somewhat associated to the one kent that you went to later but he was in that and sadly sean passed away when he was uh, 45 so this has been seven eight years ago now but when he at his funeral there were people from that church who were just celebrating hmm. him and his faith and expressing their confidence in where he was and i share that confidence and i look forward to seeing him again um because he's an amazing person but it's it's that kind of stuff so i think all those people out there who are trying to who say well the world would be a better place without christianity are really being naive or just straight up foolish and destructive they're kind of vandals on society they may not know it but they will if they get their way sadly so all i have to say is is that we talk about a faith that works faith for sean worked when nothing else that humankind had to offer could and to me that argues for it's the legitimacy of the gospel amen thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time